very big welcome. I'm not going to give an introduction, this is all the things about Eugene, but he can tell us whatever he wants to tell us about him. I just wanted to say that I've known Eugene for a number of years, partly because I'm friends with Jack Rose, his partner, but also because we've been involved in events for people of colour in different iterations over the years, mainly based at the LBC, but more recently we've had a partnership that started off between the West London Buddhist Centre and the London Buddhist Centre, which is now London-wide, developing events, hosting events for people of colour, creating a team of mitras and water members, and then also inviting some people in from further afield. And we've been on a lot of retreats together and some teams together. He's an amazing cook. <laughs> Absolutely awesome cook. So if you ever get a chance to be on a retreat where he's the cook, do take it off. <laughs> and I've known that he's been a therapist. I think it was Jacko and he who founded Barton, the Black Asian Therapist Network. I've also seen him around the Buddhist Centre at the LBC and he more recently Okay, so you've lost coordination. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we've sort of seen each other in that kind of context, but it was also very interesting for me to read the race conversation where you get so much of his other side. There's a side of him that's an activist, there's a side of him that's a therapist. He was in the music industry. So he's bringing a lot of different perspectives into his writing. So there's personal perspective, but there's also more political, more historical perspective, kind of academic perspective, the therapeutic perspective, and very much trauma-informed as well. And I think it's a very interesting combination of all of those things. So do you want to introduce yourself a bit more? Well, I've been around Tree right now, which is one of friends of the Western Buddhist Order for a while. It's been a long time, 26 years. Yeah, I've kind of had a in-out relationship, I guess. Mostly out, it's got to be said. But, <laughs> but I've always been coming to the retreats, to the various Buddhist centres. And it's, it's been mainly Sangha, you know, the people that I met who kept me engaged. It's only recently that the Dharma has flowered into something that feels like, okay, I'm really having a relationship with, with the Dharma. Of course, the Dharma was there and it made perfect sense. I'm a therapist and it all goes together. There's something about it that flowered. And I think that was when George Floyd was murdered and there was all of my body, as well as everyone's body probably, going through this process. And the Dharma just sort of came in and just cushioned me and organised me. So I wasn't expecting that <laughs> to be where the Dharma would come to my rescue. I think we're rather opposites because for me, the Dharma was where I, yes, and I was like the same. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I came and went and came and went as well. And I wonder whether some of that actually might be as a result of some of this sort of unspoken race conversation. The title of the book, The Race Conversation, there's a subtitle about creating life-changing dialogue very much about creating conditions where we can actually have these mm. conversations and there's a lot of talk about how it is so difficult and uh, the context, there's a much wider context for that. I was very struck in your book that you're talking about A, that the race conversation is going on all the time and it's not just whether we're talking about race but even more when we're not talking about things that is going on and that there's a whole lot of unconscious non-verbal communication around that happening. Yeah. That was based on the work that I was doing as a therapist, really. And the people, the families that I was working with were dealing with a lot of trauma. It was adoption. And in adoption, there's often trauma that sort of comes into the picture. And having conversations around it, as soon as you start to speak about it, it just became very difficult for, for everyone very, very quickly. Over the years, I think trauma theory has developed a little bit more over the years, over the last 15 years or so. It's really flowered into a way of working, which is very different. So obviously what you say is important, but how you say it, your internal states when you say it is probably the most important thing. So it doesn't really matter what you say so much, it's about how you say it, how, how you are, how you feel inside your nervous system, what's going on in there. 
if our nervous systems are regulated or we're feeling okay, we're feeling calm, equitable inside, we're going to communicate something to, to another person. Mm. If we're not feeling calm and equitable inside, we're going to communicate something. People have hypothesized about the process. And essentially, it's, it's either safety or danger we're communicating. Just working in that way, especially with very traumatized people, working in yourself, somehow you communicate safety, even if the other person's feeling unsafe, can create the conditions for some connection, you know, more connection. And if you blame and shame and talk about behavior, if you kind of enter the conversation that way, the conditions become less and less favorable for making connection. So that was the sort of therapy world. Mm. It just made sense to transfer that into the race conversation, which is very similar. I then started to focus on the body. It sort of doesn't help to think too much about it. I mean, obviously you need to think about it and bring some ideas and maybe bring some kind of models to your thinking and some ways of organizing what's going on in front of you. But if you sort of scratch away and try to find a sort of kernel of truth somewhere in there, it tends not to work. So I was kind of interested in the nonverbal side of things and how do we create the conditions to have the conversation. I mean, for me, there's so much that links in with some of our Buddhist teachings. One of the things I think was that intention and what you're bringing, because, you know, the, the whole basis of Buddhist ethics is the mental, emotional states you're in, your mm. motivations behind any action. Yeah. And those can be actions of body, speech and mind, so anything that we're saying, anything that we're doing, that's the basis of ethics. In the book, I was very struck by how you have this very wide perspective, which includes taking into account the truth, the reality of the impact of racism, colonialism, slavery over years and the generational impact that has, not just on the people of colour, but also on white people, that we all hold some sort of generational trauma around that and it gets triggered and it may also be on that physical level, that non-verbal level, that non-conscious level and that we actually do need to turn towards that and work with that to create mm. the context. That's kind of exactly it, really. And as I was reflecting on why I wrote the book, and sometimes people ask me, and I have different answers to that question every time I'm mm. asked it. I was doing Mitra study while I was writing this book, and I've taken in the, the Dharmarin by osmosis over the, you know, over the years mm. I've been around. So that was the context in which I was writing this book. And I, I didn't consciously bring Dharmic perspective to the book, but that was always in the background. Would this fit in with who I am as a person and the sort of Dharma perspective? So that, that was always my kind of question to myself, and sometimes it didn't. So I had to sort of go away and come back two weeks later and sort of have another look and try again with something else, a different idea. So that was always in the background. I think creating the conditions as you talk about, that intention that you have is, is important, isn't it, to cultivate that in some way. And uh, it's also important to have a sense of the discomfort that's going on or whatever's going on in your body and whatever's going on in your mind and try not to sort of put that aside because that's not relevant. You know, let's get on and get into action. Let's do some stuff. And uh, without taking that into account, you know, the action is just going to fall apart. See, at time and again, where sort of organizations get into action about solving racism in some way in the organization. And there's a lot of hope policies and everything gets organized. And then they try, they, they sort of move into it. And then, you know, all this stuff comes up and then you just sort of stop. And then there's that cycle of despair again that happens. So I was, I was kind of interested in just pulling it right back before we even had the conversation. How do you create the conditions in your body, in your mind to enter into that space? And of course, your intention is quite a big part of that and making a decision to do that as well. So I'm just wondering, sometimes people have different ideas about race and you talk quite mm. a lot about the race construct. Mm. If you'd like to say a little bit about that. Yeah, I talk a lot about the race construct and I could have used loads of other words. 
But the reason why I wanted to use that was because using racism or internalized racism or those kinds of words, they tend to sort of be one-sided. You have racism or racism's over there somewhere or you've got internalized racism. You know what I mean? It's very sort of one-sided. It's not very relational. Race constructs seem to be something that we're all swimming in. You know, it's just a construct that's in the world. We're either swimming in it or swimming against it, fighting against it or trying to transcend a construct in some way. And it just felt very a sort of inclusive thing. But it wasn't really defined anywhere. People used the construct, the word race construct, and then they sort of move on to whatever it is they wanted to talk about. I thought I'd focus on that because that's what we're working with. That's the conditions we're working with, isn't it? The construct itself, the social construct of race. There's lots of social constructs, and there? There's money. We all agree that this coin is going to be a pound. <laughs> and we all agree that's going to be, and then there we are. We've got money. There's a gender construct. There's, there's all kinds of constructs. Race is another construct. So I thought that was just an important thing to start off with. And also in terms of trauma, it's a less triggering word. So I was quite conscious of words as well. And I also talk about ascribed racial identities. So within the construct, we're all ascribed a racial identity. Some people are ambiguous. Also. It's not easy to see. And if someone doesn't quite fit a racial category, I think we're all very interested to find out who they are. But anyway, we're all ascribed a racial identity and we're given something that we need to hold on to. We might be in a position to just be able to kick the construct aside and say, well, that, that identity is not mine. I don't want it. Some people sort of hang on to it for dear life. Some people are more easy with it and they can either have it or not have it. But whatever your personal relationship with it is, whether you reject it or whether you take it on, in some ways it does matter. But obviously and the rest of the world often has a very different view of you know, your racial identity, your racial ascribed racial identity. So I think all of those ideas, I just thought were quite important, really. And to sort of use this word ascribed is a way of saying, it's not yours, you were given it. And then since you've been given this, what are you going to do with it? Is my challenge in the book, really. If you've been ascribed a white identity, what does that mean to you? What does that mean? If you've been ascribed a person of colour, black, whatever identity, whatever word you want to use, what does that mean for you? And also knowing that there's this taboo we're not supposed to talk about. And uh, if we do talk about it, there's these consequences. The first being a physiological kind of response to it. And sometimes there are real consequences. You know, fear comes from the outside, danger comes from the outside. So there's a really valid point about not talking about it. But there are also spaces where that's not necessarily the case. Like if you're friends with someone or you're in a group of people where you're all agreeing you're going to talk about this subject, the feelings are still there. So I just wanted to tease out, you know, real danger versus almost like a constructed danger that we sometimes feel. How could someone come to the conversation and what could they do to prepare themselves for it? Well, I think it is difficult talking around race. You know, I grew up in a white family. Most of my education was in mainly white environments. In a way, I've got a lot of the language, a lot of the cultural things, so it makes it very easy for me to operate in mainly white. Yeah. And yet there's a whole level of me where I'm aware that I'm fitting in with something quite often. And then sometimes something comes in and do you challenge it or you don't challenge it. I suppose I'm very interested, particularly in Tree Ratna, where I think for many years it hasn't been an area where people have been exploring or having these conversations. And then I think in these last few years, particularly after the death of George Floyd, when you know, it seemed to have quite a big impact on people yeah. all around the world, whatever colour race you were. People suddenly started becoming much more aware of race. A lot of white people wanting to understand it a bit more and work with their own things. So you had the sort of white uh, affinity groups and white yeah. awareness yeah. groups, as well as people of colour spaces and things. 
we've had in various contexts different conversations online or in person, wider Sangha, order members, individuals happening and they're still happening right now. And then you get the kickback. Is it being racist to be having a people of colour space, for instance, or mm, yeah. is talking about race or gender, all these other things, it's political, you know, and therefore you shouldn't be looking at it in a Buddhist context. I don't know what your response would be to that. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's a kind of a new narrative to me in some ways, and I've been exploring it. People are saying behind all of this, there's this ideology, sort of dangerous ideology somewhere lurking in the background. If you start to talk about race, if you start to talk about the distress that comes from having a particular racial identity, along with that comes some kind of ideology wrapped up in a little parcel together. I'm not sure that's true. Well, I know it's not true, (laughs) but ideology does live out there somewhere. And uh, it can be scary when you're you're really faced with it. But again, it's just taking something and building a construct around it and sort of taking it away from the individual relationships that people have with people and also taking it away from the fact that actually this is causing a lot of hurt and race is causing a lot of distress for people. In my therapy work, well, certainly in the therapist network that I'm part of, we've spent a long time, we've sort of been around for 20 years, And in that time, we've been creating contexts in which certain groups can actually access training in psychotherapy or training to become a counsellor. A lot of the work we're doing there is an interesting model, actually. First of all, what we did was just having groups for students, people of colour students who are training to become psychotherapists. And then when we set that up, people were saying, why do you need to meet on your own? So there were several layers to that as I came to understand it. The first layer was, I don't really understand why you need to meet on your own. But there was also another kind of context. What happens if these people of colour meet together in a group and everyone else doesn't have access to what's happening inside that group? Somehow it felt that there was some fear that got generated by just having that group. So the people outside the group are thinking, what's going on inside there? And I'd say something like, oh, we're not planning to blow up the House of Parliament. And I could just see the recognition in their eyes. That they understood what I was saying. You know, they understood that, oh, right, okay, <laughs> I don't need to be scared. Then I found that I had to create a narrative for why we met. So it wasn't enough just to have a meeting. I had to say why we met. And then I had to make that very clear on the website why we met. And why we met was to look after our own hearts, you know, to be in relationship with one another, to heal our wounds and get ourselves together again, because race has an impact on us. And then when we go back into our training courses and stuff like that, we've got a couple of people on our shoulders kind of saying, oh, yeah, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. So there is fear that gets generated when people of colour meet up. My mum and dad used to sort of say that, you know, don't congregate on the street, you know, because <laughs> they know that if you walk in parts and there's a, you know, a group of, say, black boys congregating, people got scared. And we were just sort of playing. So there is a lot of fear that happens. And so, yeah, why are you meeting? It's kind of a big thing, actually. And I had to spend a lot of time thinking about how I was going to explain it, because I didn't really know why we were meeting. I didn't have it in my brain why we were meeting. And so I had to think about it afterwards. One of the other things about the people of colour groups was that actually that signal of danger that sometimes gets created when people start talking about race, there's this sort of sense that something dangerous is going to happen, tends not to happen quite so much in the people of colour space. So there's more opportunity there for some kind of healing, yeah, because that feeling isn't quite so present. And that's another reason why we, certainly as therapists, had those groupings. So yeah, fear is a big thing. Blame is a big thing. And I try to address some of that anyway, certainly in terms of physiologically how the body works. I think it's it's important to know, get get a sense of that. I think there's something about working on your own conditioning. So it's a a personal practice almost, Mm. yeah.
Well, I think we all have conditioning, don't we? We all have views yeah. around race. It's impossible to grow up without them. Yeah. And it's whether or not we are able to work with them. Mm-hmm. And we just stay with our own patterns and are just reacting. But also, I suppose one of the things that I quite liked was that there was so much emphasis on the personal work, mm-hmm. physiological and whatever, and your own conditioning and your views. And that is so fundamental to Buddhism is to be working on our conditioning and our views and our delusions and uh, craving and aversion and all those sorts of things. And yet we can be a little selective about which views we choose to work on. And I think most people who identify as people of colour, they just have to work on this stuff because they're being faced with it, confronted with it, people reacting to it, how they encounter stuff in the world. And although it does impact on everybody, for some people they might not feel they need to do that. Mm. So I think that's one of the reasons why it feels so... Well, I think so inspiring that there are so many white awareness groups and people wanting to do that work, wanting to work with it and then coming together. Because yeah. I think that whole thing is it's not about separating yourself out. You know, people often will say, oh, isn't it being racist if you have a people of colour space or are you trying to separate the community? Mm-hmm. But no, it's sometimes like you have to create a space where you've got the conditions to have that internal conversation with yourself and maybe conversation with other people around you. Yeah. before going out into the wider group and having the more challenging conversations in a way. Yeah, providing the context in which to practice. Certainly for me, a sort of main context in which I've sort of come into Friends of the Western Buddhist Order as it was back in the day, and it kind of still is to some degree, but it's not the only context. I think if that's your only context, I'm not sure that that's really healthy either. So yeah, sort of having these different contexts to work when, you know, being a man, and working on those dynamics, those gender roles that we, social roles that we have and working on that and, you know what I mean? So I think they're just all, they're all very important, I think. You were saying that there are all these different kinds of race conversations, like race conversations between people of colour, race conversations between white people, race conversations between people of colour and white people, all the different individual ones, it's very relational. And also there's all these intersections so that it's not like there's this and there's this, Mm. you know, the experience of someone who's black and gay or trans and gay or it's all come into it. Though I think in a way a lot of the same tools and a lot of ways of working with them can be similar. Yeah, so I mean in the book I sort of suggest, you know, before having the conversation to do some work, I guess, prepare for it like you, you, you prepare for anything. One of the things would be to take on board some concepts that kind of hold your experience. And there's tons of them out there, I and mean, so many people have been writing about this for years and years and years. So to come at it from a very cognitive kind of, this is what I'm looking at, and I'll offer some in the book. And the second level is kind of being, yeah, being in relationship with race, however that might look. And it might be watching a movie, it might be reading a book. While you're in relationship, you know, what happens, what does being in relationship look like, feel like to you? you know, getting to know that part of you. And sometimes things come up which you're not very proud of and kind of working with that. And also another level might be working in terms of, I wouldn't say activism, but communicating to the world something about your experience. It might be in a poetry, it might be joining a group that's collectively doing some kind of work together. Again, I think it's another aspect which can kind of bring a sense, of, not just a sense of healing, but it can also bring a, obviously something useful to the world as well. And then all of this work, when you meet a race conversation, Someone you know very well is talking about their experience or something happens, you know, you, you kind of feel ready for it and kind of open. Of course, and a part of the work is, is distinguishing between real danger and social anxiety, I think, because there are real dangers in these conversations. 
And it's sometimes hard to distinguish what is really dangerous and what is just maybe a bit uncomfortable, maybe a bit rattled in feelings-wise. You know, all that kind of work can tease out what that means for people. And when the race hurt is really met, you know, I've seen it in therapy and I've seen it in you know, Buddhist contexts and all sorts, it can be transformative to people. And not just on one side either, it could be on both sides of the conversation, it could be transformative. And when you're trying to meet something that other people are experiencing around race, you're kind of fighting with every bone in your body, basically. But every message is telling you not to do it. Every social condition is telling you not to do it. It isn't easy work. We're conditioned to not even think about it, if we can get away with it. And I spent lots of years not thinking about it. And then I thought maybe I could transcend race and I could kind of you know, float above it. And if I read enough books, I'd be able to find my way out of it somehow. You know. <laughs> and then, it, then there's a dawning realization that there is no transcendence out of it. You're just in the conditions and you just have to work with the conditions. So instead of fighting the conditions, just accepting them as they are and meeting them as best you can. There's a lot in there. <laughs> there is a lot in there. Can I read a little passage? Oh, yeah, sure. That'd I mean, it's about blame. It's in the first 10 pages, so that's how important I think blame is. I'm assuming here that there's this kind of trauma that's been handed down to us from the past when people were being killed. There was brutal treatment of people. And that's handed down from one generation to the next in the way we're playing out the past in the present moment. And of course, then who's to blame becomes people's preoccupation. So I just said here, and this is just only one page, exploring the history of race and its impact on the present inevitably brings us to the question of blame. We blame ourselves and we blame others, and then blame moves us out of relationship and into confusion. As we begin to explore race, the paradigm of wealth accumulation and the loss of that accumulation is something that becomes increasingly apparent. British Empire and the West's focus on amassing as much as possible in one lifetime was not the paradigm in which countries in Africa or India based their social societies. These societies were less about accumulation of wealth and more about spiritual abundance through many lifetimes. At this moment in time, we are seeing a serious challenge to the wealth accumulation paradigm in Western countries through movements like Extinction Rebellion. We're also witnessing an equally robust reinvigoration of the accumulation paradigm via populism's need to perpetuate a state of crisis in society in an attempt to reassert a culture of fear and blame. The race construct is just one particular example of the consequences of the wealth accumulation paradigm. There are many more examples, like class, gender. My interest is more about how we got here rather than focusing on who is to blame. Of course, there will be some measure of blame, which is inevitable, when we delve into our relationship with race. In relationships, gross errors are often made, as we might have experienced for ourselves. However, apportioning blame or taking the blame does not often take us to where we want to go. What is more helpful is to keep our focus on repair and on finding ways to take the sting out of the debilitating emotion of shame. Instead of attempting to heal through blame, I want to foster more of a sense of responsibility and active redress. Instead of attempting to sidestep responsibility through criticism, I want to foster more of a sense of relational engagement and active repair. Blame is hard <laughs> to get out of. And in a way, it's suggesting that it's kind of easy there, perhaps, and we can just set it aside. But blame and fear is a strong basis of how our society is organised. We just need to turn the TV on for five minutes on the news to find out that generating fear is quite a strong thing that happens. And sometimes I can't take it. And I wonder, is it real fear that I should be... Should I really be scared or is this just being generated for some other purpose? It's difficult to say. 
and I try not to get into it if I can, but I also know it's quite a strong thing. So yeah, being in that blame situation where you feel blamed or you're blaming someone else is often the go-to place. And in a way that does kind of sidestep attending to the relationship, attending to you know, the hurts that's been created. I mean, one of the things that attracted me to Buddhism had been more involved in identity politics mm. was that idea of being able to just relate to fellow human beings, whoever they were, mm. whatever their conditions, what all the different identities might be. Mm. I was very inspired by that reading Sankarachita, who founded the Tibetan community and order about why he was a Buddhist and he believed that it was possible for every human being to be friends with every other human being. Yes, and I still yes. find that really inspiring. But it's like, how do you integrate all those different things? Because yes, there's the personal conversations that you have and the internal explorations and the healing that you try and do and relationally with different people you may come across and if people are open to it then then yes that healing can happen that deeper awareness understanding can happen some people may not be open to it some people will be actively attacking you and then there's also the wider societal yeah. systemic things the historical things that impact on it and actually there is a lot of hatred out there for people of all different kinds of groups and there's a lot of danger of death and being beaten up or losing a job or, you mm -hmm. know, and the way that people get silenced. One of the spaces that we created online, Welcoming Liberation, we called it. We had a period when we were in groups and we were exploring that whole issue of when we speak out and when we don't speak out, which was so live for people. Mm -hmm. Even though they'd had the invitation to speak out when they had spoken out, they'd been attacked or, mm, you know, mm. or they'd followed the grievance policies and things at work and mm, they just, mm. you know, and then they'd ended up getting sacked or they'd witnessed that for other people that they just got yeah, disappeared yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. there are very real consequences sometimes to even starting this conversation. Sure, so yes, yeah. there's sometimes... I think needing to know whether this is a place that is safe to have this conversation, yeah. whether this is a person that is safe to have it, or you're just going to lose up all your energy yeah. Yeah. in that. And yet, I think transforming on a personal level, I know that I can't solve racism in the world, and I know that it's out there. And I also know there's all kinds of ways that I've internalised other things, and I have privilege over other people, and I'm trying to work with that. Also, like the Buddhism, you know, we have our sort of sphere of influence. Yes. And how we behave, our ethical behaviour, the kindness, the awareness that yeah, we yeah, yeah. cultivate. But we can't change all the conditions, but there are certain conditions, mainly through our own actions and how we work with our minds, how we work with our hearts, how we work with our speech and our actions. Yeah, I mean, as you started to speak, I was thinking about, you know, people can be in really, really satisfying, loving relationships, you know, and they've got different racial identities. Most of their life is spent not thinking about race. Well, I guess the issue is when it comes into view, you know, there it is. Mm. Someone said something or did something or something's on the news. Somehow that interferes with the relationship. You know? The relationship sometimes can't bear it. You know? There's been certainly a lot of instances I've heard of where you know, the people having mixed racial identity relationships with families, like George Floyd, incident kind of just created really difficult family life situations you know because some people wanted to talk about it and others didn't mm. yeah so that so it can floats up and this thing is there and then it kind of just interferes with relationships what's coming up is this is the hurt isn't it that people are experiencing and then that hurt doesn't get met that's really the bottom line of all of this really isn't it i think there's this hurt that comes up and then there's a kind of a wall that's experienced and it's a wall made by the race construct we're not supposed to talk about it so as long as you don't bring race into the picture then relationships can work fine but as soon as you bring that in somehow things kind of change 
And I think there is a danger that people experience that they think, oh, if I talk about race, then I'm going to get hounded out of this organization. Or if I say something, I'm going to make a mistake. And there's loads of examples, isn't there, of people making mistakes and then they're out of a job, you know, and then they cancel on Twitter or whatever. Well, what might need to be considered there is someone makes a mistake and then they haven't acknowledged that there's a hurt there at all. And then they just stay in that position. And then the person who's maybe making a complaint or whatever in an organization says it a bit louder. And the other person, no, no, I didn't make any mistake. Well, it wasn't me, you know, it's, it's your fault. You didn't, you know. And then there's, you know, it gets louder and then it moves into maybe a complaints procedure. Maybe the complaints procedure might activate some kind of listening. The person who's not really kind of doing anything and that doesn't work and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Occasionally, I've been into organizations where they've said, well, can, you, can you come in and kind of see if you can sort of help this situation here because it's, get, it's getting really, really difficult. And then I, I look at the thing that happened around race and it's like, well, it didn't seem that bad. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not a big thing in my mind, but somehow it's moving to this really big thing. And generally speaking, the person who's having the complaint against them is just not seeing that they've done any hurt. I think that's the main thing. And then it gets completely out of control. So I think there is a sense, yes, there is danger. And if you do make mistakes, yes, there can be some big consequences. But quite often, these little mistakes can be attended to really, really like straightforwardly, really, in lots of ways. Oh, so really sorry, something happened between us. I'm really interested. I want to know what's going on. And taking it, you know, taking the fact you hurt someone, understanding the consequence of that. Why would they be hurt? Understanding that there's a generational history that you're tapping into. It's not just this moment in time that you need to focus on. There's a history there. Just having all of that kind of perspective completely diffuse the situation really, really quickly. And in fact, it can actually be the thing that creates stronger bonds between people. Yeah, how do you create the environment where you can respond rather than react? But basically, you need to know the history of how we got here. I have a sense of it, and that doesn't have a big in-depth knowledge about it, but I have a certain sense of that. And you also need to know that hurt can be triggered quite quickly. That rupture in the relationship can also be mended, you know, as well. So you've triggered off quite a lot in me in there. Because, okay. <laughs> you know, talking about organisations and what happens in organisations, you know, is quite important, isn't it? Maybe loads of people in Tree Ratner are concerned about making mistakes and stuff. That's a big concern with people. But again, if you're having a conversation for the first time, if you haven't really thought about it before and you're just sort of coming to it the first time, you're going to make a mistake. And it's sort of like, well, what happens in a spiritual context as well with all of that? When well, you're trying to have certain views and values and behave yeah. in certain things and then you suddenly realise oh, you just have this thought that you're very ashamed of or feeling yeah. very ashamed of or you, know, you don't know quite how to deal with things. We think, well, we just need to be practicing in our spiritual way according to yeah. our values or our precepts or whatever. And that's not always enough. But then importing in all the yeah. society things don't always help either. And then it's how do we... Yeah. So I suppose for me, it's like, how do we have those conversations? How do we heal? How do we get beyond it? But also, how do we make change in the whole culture? Something about being seen as well yeah. and being witnessed. And I know when I was growing up, there were a lot of people I was quite close friends with and they would just sort of say, well, oh no, we never think of you as being black. Mm. Well, actually, I am black. <laughs> so mm. that was sort of seen as like kind of a compliment, <laughs> you know, you're not like the others. To some extent, I went along with that and then later mm. on it became a bit more of a rub. Yeah. But to be quite honest, the race conversations, you know, the hurt can happen between people of colour just as much as between well, white people. And I felt more rejected quite often by yeah, uh, yeah, people yeah. of colour because I'm mixed race and I don't fit that. And I've, you know, got more identified because I like Mozart and Beethoven and <laughs> Jen Austin, those sorts of things, you know. Yeah, the hurt of racism, you know, it doesn't matter what race you are, you still don't address it, you know what I mean? 
in the people of colour communities, you know, the hurt of racism isn't necessarily addressed there either. It can be very, very hidden. You can make comments about the colour of someone's skin, you know, and, and you know, it's just a joke a lot of the time. So, yeah, in a way, it doesn't really matter what racial identity you have. The same things are going on, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's functional. I mean, if you think about it, there's something functional about the whole thing. But yeah, you're right. Even within people of colour communities, black communities, there's a lot of hurt there as well, isn't there? Unaddressed and easily evoked. And that needs to be thought about and paid attention to as well. I think I'll maybe just say something about just my own process, really. And in a way, I thought, oh, you know, it's just going to be detrimental to my health to dig into all this stuff. Painful, it's not going to be very helpful to me, you know. But yeah, I was compelled to do it anyway. You know, when I was a teenager, there was a little burst of wanting to know more information, reading loads of books, and then my mid-twenties and thirties. So there's always been these periods of time. And what's actually happened is, the more I came to understand my conditioning as a black person, as a man, the more liberated I felt. I could be more human almost, or I became more human, which is kind of counter really to the idea if you dig into it, it's just going to be pain and misery. Nothing can be gained from it, so let's just put it aside and get on with our lives. You know, that's the other narrative, isn't it? It actually was liberating because I couldn't move beyond it unless I knew it, you know, really understood what was going on, which meant diving into identity, which meant diving into the view, which is counter to what we might hear in Buddhism. But actually, it's not counter at all. Buddhism is really about moving beyond views, isn't it? Hmm. So it's not sidestepping view <laughs> and going to the other side, it's actually going through and beyond. So you do have to engage with the, the views that are around, especially around race. So that was one thing that was kind of important to, for me. And that I've been really encouraged by members of Tree Ratna who've been really grappling and working hard at their own racial identity. There's quite a few people being described the white identity and they're really getting down and really thinking about really challenging themselves. It's a massive thing to have your identity challenged or to change your identity. It's massive, isn't it? I'm not the person I thought I was. There's certain aspects of me that I didn't know that was there and actually I don't even like it. But then learning to live with it. Actually, if this is conditioning, I'm working with it. It's not me, it's my conditioning. So I've been really encouraged by that people have been working in that area, actually, and really encouraged by the growth of the community, the people who come community, and creating the context. I think it's all about creating the context, isn't it, for people to practice, to me. That's why I wrote the book to some degree, and that's why, you know, for a lot of people, this is the context of their lives. And to not engage with it means we're not going to create the conditions to, to practice. For me, it's as simple as that. They're not just engaging with it for its own sake or because it's some political agenda we want to drive a stake through, <laughs> whatever. Nothing really to do with that. It's really about creating the context. And it seems to be doing that. Well, not the book exactly, but whatever's been going on in Tree Ratner over the years is really flowering. It really, really opens my heart when I see what's been going on. I can say to people I know, yeah, actually, it's all right. Tree Ratner to come in. No, come on in. <laughs> It's not going to be all roses, and Buddhism isn't anyway. When you're changing your life, it's not going to be like that at all. It's always going to be hard work. But, you know, at least there's a context in which you can practice, which might meet some part of you, some part of your experience. It's not going to be the whole of you, of course. Yeah, I'm really encouraged by that. Well, I think I'm encouraged by it. If 
but I'm also aware of how much more work there is to do. And sure. also it depends on which parts of Tree Ratna you come into. Well, yes, You know, course. there are some of places course. where there are more people of colour, there are more people who are aware and sensitive, and there's other places where the lack of awareness and a lot of resistance and actually... Of course, yeah. of course, and that needs to be noted for sure, yeah. yeah. And I suppose it seems to me that things like your book offer ways where we can make those spaces more welcoming if people are willing to become aware that there is a race conversation or mm. being willing to sort of look at the stuff and make it more welcoming you know because for me i just want to make the dome available to everybody and that said but actually when you look at it there's certain areas and certain groups that because of how we are mm. because of people's attitudes and what's not there and what isn't there we haven't created those spaces you know mm. So whether it's people of colour, whether it's, you know, LGBTQ plus people, mm-hmm. whether it's class, whether it's people with disabilities, there are a whole lot of other areas mm-hmm. that yeah. um, we could make ourselves more open and inclusive and that people will say, well, those are concepts from outside, but actually I think they're very Buddhist. You know, the Buddha went around teaching to anybody and everybody, regardless <laughs> mm-hmm. of class and caste and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I think just having a little bit more awareness about, well, I think you sort of have that combination of just being honest and saying, well, this is the case. Yeah. You know, there's racism, there's all this impact of what's happened and the generational trauma for everybody yeah. living in this world where this has happened yeah. and is still happening. And there's a possibility of healing yeah. and communication and doing things better and that in a way, if we can do that in our own level and if other people can do it at their level, then we can create something bigger. So it feels to me there's a lot of hope in your book and a lot of mm. practical things. Yeah, I think it is essentially hopeful. I'm assuming it's more than possible (laughs) to have race conversations and for them to be really fruitful, really healing both parties. So it's not just like a one-sided thing. Someone's giving something to someone else. I've witnessed those kinds of conversations happening and I've had them happen to me. So I guess I'm coming from a certain place. So I spent a lot of time as a therapist and a lot of time thinking about this. Maybe my little bubble, my world is kind of of a particular bubble. I'm going to accept that. It's going to be it's horrible outside the bubble and all the rest of it. But if the bubble can get bigger, you know, and there could be little bubbles all over the place. So yeah, I'm essentially hopeful. I don't know if there's another way to be with this. <laughs> it seems very practical to be hopeful, but also it's not just practical because the hope comes from somewhere, in my experience, I suppose. Yeah. Well, my experience is often just being scared from all this, and still now, yeah, yeah, I yeah. do find myself scared in certain situations, yeah. like bringing myself in, yeah. doing something like this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I do very much hope that we can continue having conversations and create conditions for more conversations and connection with each other and understanding each other. And it just comes back down to, you know, really basic things that we're trying to do anyway in Buddhism get to know ourselves really well in all our conditioning and our views and that get yeah. our fixed identities. But that doesn't mean to say that you don't have any experience of identity because at the moment we do. Mm. So even if that's provisional, even if it's not ultimate reality, we do still have these. Yeah, we, you know, we yeah. come to the Dharma with a conditioned mind, don't we? And that's mm. just how it is. And we need to bring about culture as well, you know. Mm. Various Buddhist communities have a culture. Mm. And a culture is normally created through ideologies, various ideologies of various kinds, create a culture. But of course, they don't see it that way. What they see is uh, what they're doing is kind of ideology free, and ideology lives outside. So again, it's just kind of having a sense that actually, that's not even possible. (laughs) Ideology is all over the place. Which ones are you going to select as privileged? And which ones are going to be not privileged? Again, it's just, it's another version of race and how race operates, isn't it? So yeah, just sort of having, you know, just sort of Teasing out all of those things, I think it's really 
quite important the kind of thing that race doesn't just live outside or across the tracks somewhere else it sort of lives here too and just having a sense of that is of course true because a lot of people don't think that people think well race is somewhere else and of course that can't be can't just live on its own it has to live with the other side i think it's just really important just to engage your mind in those kinds of ideas and thoughts and the dharma is most basic it's engaging with suffering isn't it so to me it feels inseparable from working with this stuff well it's also conditioned co-production everything arising in relationship with other things and so there's a lot of things that have arisen co-arisen to create where we are now but that we can create conditions hopefully where some of that can pass away things arise and pass away i think probably we should end the conversation there so thank you very much okay thank you